Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hi there, Kirk here again, bringing you this week's Boss Podcast. Welcome to episode six. This week, we have Claire Lewis' accidental bad manager talk from Boss Europe 2019, teaching us how being nice isn't always the kindest option, and perhaps we are spending more time solving problems than focusing on the root of the problem at hand. Claire Liu is the CEO of Know Your Team, a software tool that helps small business owners overcome company growing pains and has helped over 8,000 people at companies like Airbnb and Kickstarter. Don't forget to sign up for the Boss newsletter and get all the new talks and insights direct to your inbox as soon as they go live online. Visit businessofsoftware.org update to find out more. Happy listening! Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Claire Liu, and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team. We are a software tool that helps leaders become better managers. And for the past almost 10 years now, I've spent my working life studying, researching, writing, and speaking on this very topic of how do you help someone become a better leader? So I've done that in running my own consulting practice, and now today, as the CEO of Know Your Team, where our tool helps over 15,000 people all over the world in over 25 different countries, some of you who are in this room, which is great. We kind of have a weird origin story, though, as a company, which I'd love to touch on before I dive into everything. So as Know Your Team, for those of you who might not know, we are actually a spinoff of Basecamp a tool that's been mentioned a few times. They make one of the world's most popular project management software tools. And they, back in, I don't know, this was maybe six years ago, they were actually my very first consulting client. So they had hired me to help them as leaders, the co-founders of Basecamp, figure out how do we become better leaders? How do we create a more open and honest environment in Basecamp? And then asked me to run this prototype that they had developed, at the time then called Know Your Company. So since then, I became the CEO of what was then Know Your Company, and in the past year, or as the years progressed, what I realized is while we were originally helping CEOs of mainly small businesses really get feedback, most recently I found that our software and all the educational writing that I've been doing actually helped managers the most. So new managers, middle managers, managers who just feel like they're stuck. And so we made a really big change in the business just um, this past December, where we decided to focus purely on helping the people who seemed to resonate most with what we were doing, and that was, was managers. So today, though, I'm excited to share all the insights that I've gained and that our company has gathered over these past five years in working with managers of all different types of companies in all different stages. The, Biggest question in this process of all the things that we've been learning and how to help managers become better is something that I'm curious to pose to all of you today, which is, who's the worst boss you've ever had? And no need to say this person's name out loud. You can think this to yourself. Don't want to incriminate anyone here if you might be with that person at this conference. But you know, I'd love for you to just reflect on your career, who this person might have been, it's likely that this person was formative for you. Maybe they are the reason you manage and lead people in a certain way. Maybe, maybe they're the reason you left your last job. 
What we often don't think about, though, when it comes to who this worst boss is, is could this worst boss be us? Could we, in fact, unintentionally, accidentally, be someone else's worst boss? Let me explain. So Gallup, every single year, does a study that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's called the Q12 assessment, where they survey millions of managers in, I believe, over 84,000 business units. And this is one of the biggest findings that they found in the most recent Gallup assessment, which they found that 82% of the time, companies are choosing the wrong manager. So what they're doing in most companies, it seems, is they're looking at the individual skills and traits that make someone successful in their role and believing that they are gonna transfer over well to when they promote them as a manager. Yet that doesn't happen and the performance isn't there. And so as a result, these folks are in these positions as managers, as executives, 82% of the time it's really the wrong fit. In the same study, again, 1.8 million managers involved in the survey, Gallup found that one in 10 managers have what they call the natural talent to manage. Now, what they mean by this is Gallup identified five traits that they saw across the most successful leaders, everything around authority, decision making, and now that's not to say that you can't learn these skills, but in terms of you having them out of the gate and these skills being inherent to you as a manager, <laughs> most of us don't have this. Only one in 10 of us come out of the gates with this inherent talent, with this, these five identifiable traits that they recognize. Okay, so given that 82% of us, myself included, in this room were chosen for the wrong reasons and that only one in 10 of us actually have the talent to do this job well, the likelihood that we might actually be someone else's worst boss is actually frighteningly high. And so in many ways, this talk is, is autobiographical in the sense that how do we actually avoid this happening? How do we act, avoid accidentally becoming someone's worst boss when, when we don't mean to be, when all of us have had worst bosses? We know what it's like. So what can we do to just make sure we're not doing that to other people? So what I'm gonna do is share with you across the past five years, the 15, over 15,000 people we've worked with, folks from all over the world, I'm gonna share the insights, the data that we've gathered and really pinpoint what are the biggest mistakes that are unseen, that we commit with not, without really even knowing, what are the biggest mistakes that we make, in particular, the six biggest mistakes that we accidentally make as worst bosses. So the first, is around something that Gareth did a wonderful job in his talk of diving really deep on, is around trust. And if you know any of you uh, were able to, to see Gareth's great talk, I'm sure you walked away thinking, or maybe you even knew this before, yeah, trust is important, of course. You know, and it's intuitive, like I get it, Claire. Yeah, you know, trust, it's about team building. Trust is about having team retreats that was talked about earlier today and holding social events. Building trust is about thanking team members. It's about recognition, showing people that you care. Trust is about being transparent with company information. This is what trust is about, right? Well, something interesting happened. We did a survey this past fall with over 600 managers from folks all over the world mainly in the tech industry, and this is what they said. 
they actually rated these three elements or ways of building trust as the, or as the least effective ways. So the retreats that we do, all the money we spend there, the amount of time we spend thanking folks and showing recognition, the conscious effort we put into sharing team information, those are all beneficial, but when it comes to actually building trust, those don't seem to be the greatest levers, according to these folks. So what did they rank? What did they say about what the most effective ways to build trust were? Here's what they said. They said, showing vulnerability as a leader, admitting your mistakes was the number one reason, or way, excuse me, to build trust in a team. Second best way to build trust is to make your intentions clear, to say why you're doing something. And then the third most effective way to build trust we found in the survey was to keep your commitments as a leader, to follow through and, and do what you say you're gonna do. Now what I find fascinating about this, especially you know, as a CEO running in my own company, is that none of this stuff actually costs money, right? <laughs> saying what you're struggling with, saying why you're not gonna do something, actually just following through on what you're gonna say. You know, we think about all these complex and fancy ways to build trust and to bring consultants and, and, and figure out like, oh, how do I, you know, what, what do I do with this trust problem in my team? And really what is revealing about these answers is that what trust is truly about is your intention matching your behavior. That's when you trust someone as a leader. It's when what you say you're going to do and what you actually do end up being the same thing. So trust, it's not about rapport. It's not about getting people to like you. And it's not about team building. Trust is intention and behavior. And if we can really register that as leaders, we can avoid that costly mistake. The second biggest mistake we often find ourselves committing as managers has to do with one-on-one -on -one meetings. How many of you in this room might hold one-on-one -on -one meetings or attend one-on-one -on -one meetings with your staff direct report? Just yeah, show of hands. Okay, what vast majority, if not everyone in this room. That's fantastic. What's interesting is, and I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands for this one, it's totally cool. Which is, I'm curious though to ask yourself, well how often do you prepare for those one-on-one -on -one meetings? No pressure, right? We're busy, I get it, right? Maybe sometimes, maybe when you can, right? You try, but it doesn't always happen, that's fine. I think it's fine, right? Should be okay. Well, something really interesting about, first of all, the effectiveness of these meetings. Great to see that so many people are participating in them because you, along with the majority of the managers that we surveyed this fall, that was, I believe, yeah, over a thousand different managers from all over the world, they would agree with you. They would say, yes, they would raise their hand and go, you know what, Claire, I do one-on-one -on -one meetings, and they're great, they're so effective. In fact, almost 90% of managers say, ah, the one-on-one -on -one meetings are positively affecting my team's performance. Employees would also agree. They would say, oh, wow, yeah, I agree. 71% of employees who answered, almost 1,000 out of almost 1,000 employees, said that one-on-one -on -one meetings do positively affect my team performance too. Something interesting though about these numbers you haven't noticed, which is <laughs> an interesting gap. 17-point <laughs> percentage difference here between a manager's perceived effectiveness of these meetings versus employees, meaning that the potential for you as a manager to actually be getting more out of these meetings, to make sure that you're encouraging folks in the right way is there, and it's actually not as high to what you personally think. And while an employee does think, oh yeah, I am getting, you know, I'm, I'm seeing these as being positive, there's almost 20% potential to actually have that be even more. 
So why doesn't, you know, why, why is there this mismatch? Like why, why is it that maybe employees aren't seeing as much of the value or effectiveness as you would like to see in, in having their one-on-one -on -one meetings? Interesting. So we asked employees, well, how well prepared would you say most managers are when they come to the one-on-one -on -one meeting? 76% of employees said, oh, they're somewhat prepared at best, but most of them are actually not prepared or not prepared at all. In fact, of this, 40% said that their manager is not prepared or not prepared at all for their one-on-one -on -one meetings. Which goes to say that if there's this gap in how we spend these meetings, you know, how many hours, a month, a week alone are we spending in these meetings? If there's this gap in the perceived effectiveness that these meetings are having, and employees are saying that we're not coming to them very prepared, okay, maybe we should prepare for them a little bit. So this is something that is, again, you know, seemingly, uh, seemingly pretty apparent, right? But Preparing for one-on-one -on -one meetings can actually be deceptively tricky if we're not very deliberate about them. So one of the most important parts of preparing for a one-on-one -on -one meeting well is actually first figuring out what the purpose of a one-on-one -on -one meeting is with your staff. So what a one-on-one -on -one meeting's purpose isn't is a status update. So if you find yourself in your regular one-on-ones with your staff where it's what's the latest, give me an update on this, how's X project going, you're wasting their time. Because the purpose of a one-on-one -on -one meeting isn't to get updated on, on something. I mean, you can do that in email, you can do that in Slack. The purpose of a one-on-one -on -one meeting is to truly uncover potential issues and get feedback. It's almost a sacred time where there's no other meeting where you actually can, can do that face-to-face. -face. So to use it to, to get caught up on something that you could you virtually use any other channel, it's, it's a waste. So know what the purpose of a one-on-one -on -one meeting is, and as you go into preparing for it, make sure that it's not a status update. The second thing that you can do in preparing for a one-on-one -on -one meeting well is to co-author the agenda with your team member. And some of you may already do this, which is fantastic. And so this is as simple as writing a draft of, okay, here are some topics that I think would be helpful. Here are some questions I'd like to ask. So this does a few things when you do this. One, you give your team member a heads up so they're not blindsided when you ask them a tough question or ask them about feedback from the company. The other thing that it does is it gives them buy into the actual conversation. So if we want that 17-point percentage gap to decrease and for both the manager and employee to be thinking that this is highly effective, then you want that person to be bought in into thinking about, well, what's the actual content of this conversation? And you can do that simply by just you know, sending an agenda over ahead of time. And the last critical piece of having an effective one-on-one -on -one meeting is making sure you do not ask this question, which is, how can I help you? Hmm, I am willing to bet money, well, maybe not real money, I don't know, but I'm willing to bet that most of you have asked this question before. Maybe to even a colleague, maybe to your partner. I've asked this question a ton of times. Well, I used to ask it up until recently. So in all the workshops that we run with all the CEOs and managers that we work with, we actually found in talking with employees on the other side that this question is actually completely, completely destructive because what asking how can I help you does is it places the burden of figuring out what you need to do better as a manager on the employee. You're saying, tell me 
<laughs> what I should be doing better. You're not offering help, you're not offering suggestions. You're putting all the hard work on the other person. And if you can only imagine as an employee being on the flip side hearing that, you might be caught off guard, you're thinking, oh God, like I have to tell my boss like what they can do to help me. Like, oh my, okay, uh, I, how do I make this come across in a way where they're not gonna take it? I'm just not gonna say anything. So most of the time, as I'm sure many of you have heard, what people will say is, I can't, I can't think of anything right now. Yeah, we're good, right? I mean, how rare is it that someone, you know, you ask, uh, how can I help you? And someone's like, oh, let me tell you. Let me give you, like, here's the list, right? <laughs> Please talk to me after the talk if that has ever happened to you. I would love to hear about it. Um, no one has told me that yet. So make sure that you are not asking this question, how can I help you? If you are trying to figure out how you can help, there are tons of other questions to ask. And here are a few of my favorites. So one is to simply ask, what are your biggest time wasters? And this is an amazing question because what this reveals is obstacles that people have, but usually that they're not willing to tell you. Because you're making it about, oh, what this is, there's this thing that's wasting time. It's not you, this project that you assigned me and you gave me this deliverable, right? It's making it a bit more objective. It's dis distancing this bad thing that they don't want. So you give them sort of an out to tell you. It's a great question to ask. Another fantastic question to ask in a one-on-one -on -one meeting is, when have you felt bored? in the past quarter or in the past week. This is really, um, really incisive because what it does is it reveals people's level of motivation without directly asking them, are you engaged? Are you happy in your job? Because, I mean, again, it's a little too on the nose. Like, people aren't going to be that comfortable to tell you right away. But asking instead, are you bored in the past quarter? Are you frustrated? Right? Being more specific in your questions reveals a lot more. Another great question to ask in a one-on-one -on -one, instead of how can I help you is to ask this, what about my management style can I improve? Again, you'll notice the specificity in directly asking for feedback about not just what can I do generally or what do you think about how I'm doing as a manager? No, this is how can I improve my management style? Gives a whole open field for someone to say, well, you know what, the way that you happen to to share deliverables, you kind of do it a little too late, like I wish I had context you know, more up front. This question invites that depth of a response. So here's the thing, these meetings, they are high leverage, right? Most of us in this room are doing them, but are we getting the most out of them? And most importantly, is our team getting the most out of them? And if we want to avoid becoming a bad boss, we can utilize these meetings to make sure that we're not showing up just sort of prepared but truly prepare. The third biggest mistake that we've noticed that managers will unintentionally make is around time. Most of us may think that um, being busy is good, right? It means you're getting stuff done, you're making it happen. This is good, when things are, you know, moving, this is good, busy is good. Or is it? So on a podcast that I run called The Heartbeat, I had the chance to interview Michael Lopp, who's the VP of Engineering at Slack, also known as RANS, and he said something really interesting to me. He said, Claire, you know, if you're too busy actually doing the work as a manager, that's actually a huge mistake. Because when you're too busy doing the work, you don't actually get to see if two people are having a potential conflict. If you're too busy doing the work, you don't realize that you actually need a lot more feedback before that product goes out the door. If you're too busy doing the work, 
you don't actually realize that someone's about to leave the team. Because the thing is, is as a leader, what your role is, it's not actually do the work, but it's to create the environment to do the work. And you can't do that. You can't help other people do the work if you're too busy doing the actual work yourself. If you're adjusting, oh, this pixel just right here. Oh, you know what? I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna go into Illustrator really quick and just, you know, it just needs to be tidied up a little. No. If you're too busy doing that, then you're not actually utilizing your capacity to help folks do what honestly you hired them to do. So what should leaders be spending their time on? If they're not supposed to be doing the actual work or even meddling and fixing things last minute, what are, what are we supposed to be doing? So I pose this question to our online leadership community that we have that's a part of Know Your Team. It's called a water, the Water Cooler, and we have over 1,000 managers from all over the world who participate in it and share advice and give suggestions on different issues. And I asked, well, what do you spend your time doing, right? And here's what they said. The number one thing that across the board that managers said that they spend their time doing or should spend their time doing is recruiting and hiring. And this has been a wonderful theme and we've seen a great talk on that during this conference. But recruiting and hiring is so crucial and the number one thing you should be spending your time on as a leader because <laughs> where you are going as a team and what you are doing doesn't matter if you don't have the right people doing the stuff. So spending your energy and time with deliberate focus on this is key. The second best use of a leader's time, according to the managers that we talk to, is to make sure that you are thinking and considering the long-term vision and culture of the team. After all, there is truly no one else in the company or on your team whose job it is to do this. No one else is thinking about this. This is your job as a leader to be thinking about how are we behaving, what is acceptable behavior, where is it that we want to go? What, was it, what is success going to look like when we get there? It's no one else's job but us as leaders to be doing that. So that's where the second biggest piece of our time should be going. And then lastly, as leaders, we need to be communicating the direction at all times. Because this context is the only way people are going to know what's good, what's bad. If I go left, if I go right. If I stop or if I start. And again, who else is supposed to be doing that, right? Just us as managers. So we have to remember, as we think about time, if we feel ourselves being a little too busy in too many meetings where it's just a little bit too in the work, we have to pause and remember that the best leaders, actually, they choose not to be busy. Don't take that sign of a full calendar of uh, tickets being just checked off the list as equivalence to your ability as a manager. Remember, it's really in how you are choosing to spend your time. The fourth biggest mistake that we've seen in managers, and one they make constantly without even knowing, is actually around vision. Also something touched on quite a few times during the conference. So most of us would agree that you know, vision is paramount, and typically it better be obvious, right? Or why else would we be in this position as a manager or as a leader? In fact, vision to us as managers seems so obvious. We ran a survey just this past fall around vision and context in particular, and we found that people said that it's actually the most important thing a manager should be sharing and communicating with their staff, and I'm willing to guess most of you would also agree with that. 
Well, so if that's the case, then why is it the case that when we asked through Know Your Team, and this is over almost 3,000 people we asked, if someone asked you to describe the company's vision to you, would a clear answer come to mind? And almost 30%, so almost a third of folks, again, almost 3,000 people answered this, said no. So that's like, you know, if you have a nine-person team, that's three people being like, no, I couldn't tell you what the vision in the team is. That's troubling. And it's troubling for, for a few reasons, which I'll get into, but let's, let's, let's hold up for a second, because vision, before we go any further, we can't think about how to create a good vision or why vision matters if we actually don't properly define what it is. I feel like vision is possibly the most misconstrued wor buzzwordy of <laughs> buzzword words up there with, with culture and innovation. So let's talk about what vision is and what it isn't. What vision isn't is vision is not mission. Because mission is what you do. Mission is what? So as know your team, our mission is to build software that helps managers become better. That's what we do. But that's not vision. Vision is also not values. So as know your team, we think about how we do our work, we think about our values, and it's okay, simplicity, honesty, trust, passion, okay. Those values, though, that's not our vision. Vision is also not purpose. So the purpose for why Know Your Team exists is because we wanna help managers become better. Yet that why is not the vision either. Because what vision actually is, is a place. It's a destination. Vision is particularly a picture of a better place. It's where you want to be. And this distinction is important because what our vision is at Know Your Team is it's a world where good leadership is not the exception. It's very different if you compare that statement to, oh, we're a software tool trying to help managers become better. Oh, this is how we do that, you know, with simplicity, et cetera. Now, with a crystal clear vision, a few things happen. One, because we can say, okay, this is the world we want to create, all of a sudden, a lot of business decisions become a lot more clear. We can say, you know what? We actually want to help leaders at all stages because it's about making sure that good leadership is not the exception. This also means that, huh, we better define what good leadership is. That should, that's gotta be a core part of, of our business, right? All of a sudden, a lot of decisions around who we're serving, how we should be serving them, becomes a lot easier for us as a manager to digest. And then secondly, once we have this clear vision, you're able to actually motivate and bring your team along so much more easier than you could without it. Having that picture of a better place, being able to see, okay, that's the world we wanna create, gets everyone on board and excited to do that, so much more than saying, oh, this is how we're doing that with these values, or this is what our mission is, this is what we're doing. People wanna know where. They wanna know what that picture of a better place is. And I think one of the, the, the best examples of this, I mean, beyond Know Your Team is, you know, think about Apple, right? Apple, why, why do people work so hard on the products? Why are they able to create what they create? And you could say, oh, Claire, well, it's their, you know, it's their mission. They're making these, these simple, beautiful products. Their values are simplicity, yeah, beauty, well-designed things, okay. But what is their vision, right? Their vision is to create a world where we live with incredible simplicity and ease. So what this does is when an engineer is designing and, and, and working on a piece of hardware, 
They don't imagine the mission of Apple. They actually imagine the vision. They imagine a person picking up the phone and interacting with that object. They imagine the person pulling it out of the box and their smile that, that comes to their face. That's what's motivating that engineer, that designer. It's not any of this other stuff. And so as a leader, and the reason I wanted to really zoom in on this is clarifying what this vision actually is, understanding that it does these two things of clarifying our decisions in the business and then also motivating our team means that we better get it pretty good. We better know what it is ourselves. We better, know, we better make sure our team knows what it is and that they're bought on in it. So how do you do that? That sounds pretty hard, right? Well, first of all, if you don't know what the vision of your team is, which is actually the majority, actually, of companies and CEOs and managers that we work with find, is, ah, like, I know what mission is and I know what our values are and our purpose, but I actually don't really know what our vision is, right? Is to actually first commit to figuring it out. Say that this is going to be something that you talk about at your next all-team meeting. Have this be a part of your team's next deep dive in self-reflection. The second thing that you can do in making sure that this vision is clear and that not, you know, and that 30% of your team is, you know, not feeling clueless about it is to ask your team about their personal visions because a shared vision across the team is only built by people's individual visions. In other words, where you want to get to as a team doesn't really matter if each person doesn't see the value and how they're and why getting to that place matters to them. So you need to ask individually, where do you see yourself? What matters to you? Where do you want to be in five years, personally? Like, not, you know, it doesn't even have to do with the team. But figuring out what each person's personal visions are is how you build that greater vision and how you get to that picture of a better place. It comes from each person. And then lastly, creating a shared vision often can come from the interactions that you have with the people who interact with your products and benefit from your work the most. And this is important because we can sort of sit in our offices postulating what we think the picture of a better world should be, thinking, oh, it's, you know, I, I like this, this feels good. And it can be a whole other thing to talk to people who actually use your product, who utilize your service, and to realize that the benefit that they're getting, the picture of a better world that you're creating for them is, is actually quite different. Hey, it might even be better than what you imagined. And so if you're looking for a place to start of, okay, Claire, I've, you know, I figured it out, I've talked to my team, yeah, make sure that you go back and you talk to your customers, which has been also touched on in this conference, but talk to your customers specifically about, well, how is this actually creating a better world for you? And the more that you can interact with folks directly there, the clearer your vision is going to be. Because the thing is, this whole concept of vision, now that we've hopefully identified it a little bit more strongly, it's it's not something that just happens. You create it. You have to be intentional about it. It definitely is not obvious. The fifth biggest mistake that we often make as leaders is around being nice. So I am nice, I promise. <laughs> I think most folks that I've met so far at this conference like exceedingly nice. I'd like to think that being nice is good. Patty McCord thinks otherwise. So she was actually referenced earlier today in the talks. So if you don't know of Patty, she's a former head of people at Netflix, also recently wrote a book called Powerful. 
And in her book, she actually said this, being nice often leads to people actually feeling worse. Wait, what? What, is, what, do you, what could you possibly be talking about? Well, think about it. So when, you get, when you're nice, when you're giving feedback, what happens? One of my favorite stories about this, by the way, is on our podcast, we had Des Trainer, who's the co-founder of Intercom. He's spoken at Boss before. And he told me, Claire, you go, this is a great story. I had a feedback session planned with a colleague, so I wrote on a post-it note all the things that I was going to say. And it was a serious conversation. There were a lot of things this person needed to be better at. A, B, C, wrote it very clear. Put it on my computer, looked at the post-it note, went into the meeting, was ready. Just ready to, to let this person know exactly what they needed to do better. And then he said, you know, and then I came out of the meeting, you know, felt like the conversation was good, and I looked at that post-it note, I didn't say a single thing on the post-it note. Not a single thing. He's like, I was too nice. I was too concerned about how I was coming off, if that person was feeling good. So I completely missed the boat. And guess what? That's another you know, day, week that goes by. Who knows? Maybe months go by before that person actually knows that their behavior has to change. So nice actually sacrifices how that person is going to end up feeling. Trust me, three weeks from now, when you actually do tell them the truth, and they go, wait, why didn't you tell me earlier? Nice also backfires in disagreements. Confrontation is something that many of us don't like. If you're good at it and you do seek it out, fantastic. But for many of us, it's actually something that, that we find uh, difficult to do as, as nice people, which again is, you know, is a good thing. But when it comes to, to making sure our team is functioning well, nice backfires in disagreements. It means that we can't address a point head on. It means that we're, we're thinking about the way to frame it instead of just delivering the actual merits. Nice backfires when it comes to firing. I mean, I can think about myself personally when I've had to fire people where I've postponed it, unfortunately, because I'm concerned about being, being nice. And we all know what happens when someone who isn't supposed to be a part of the company stays around longer than they should. And then nice also actually, this is interesting, actually backfires when it comes to praise. Sometimes we can tell someone that their work is good and it's actually not that good. Sometimes we can tell someone their work is great, and ooh, maybe, you know, maybe it should have been a little bit different. And so it avoids us from communicating the truth and from letting that person really understand what a quality bar of work should be. On our podcast, we also eat, uh, interviewed Heaton Shaw, who's a former founder of Kissmetrics uh, and Crazy Egg, and he admitted this as well. He said, you know, it's, it's fascinating because when you optimize for being nice, when this becomes the center of your universe, you actually develop a toxic culture in your company. So it doesn't just even infect that single interaction that you have, but as a leader, people learn from your behavior. So if you're saying, this is good, guess what your teammate's then gonna say to their coworker? Oh yeah, no, that's good too, it's good, it's good, it looks good, no mistakes, don't worry about it. People learn from that, right? So your job as a, as a leader, it's, it's not to be nice. It's about the outcome, right? And what we find, in fact, is that when we do center around being nice, it's actually because we're being a little selfish. When you're choosing to optimize for nice, when you're choosing to be nice over all else, what you're essentially saying to the rest of your team is, I care more about your perception of me than I do about us actually accomplishing the goal that we want to achieve. And that's selfish. So I'm not now encouraging anyone to get out of here and become an asshole. That's not what I'm saying, right? There's some nuance to this message. 
But here's the, like that's that's table stakes. Like not being nice isn't meaning that you have to be evil, right? Like a baseline, yes, be a courteous, respectful, and self-reflective person. You can be fair, right? But you don't have to be likable. You can be honest, but you don't have to focus on being feel-good. These things are not mutually exclusive, honesty and compassion. So how do you do this more practically, right? Because I'm sure this isn't the first time you've come across this concept. Let's, let's get real. Like, wh what do you actually do to make sure that you're not falling into this trap, especially if you have a tendency to, to be nice and to optimize for being nice? So one of my favorite questions to ask myself as a self-check is to say, well, what is it that my team is actually counting on me for? Readjust what the true thing is that you have to deliver on. Because what you'll find in asking that question is you'll realize, gosh, they are depending on me to make sure we close this client deal. They're depending on me to make sure we make progress on this, on, on what we said we're gonna do. Like if I don't fire this person, if I don't give this feedback directly, if I don't sugar, or if I'm sugarcoating things, I'm failing them in this way. They're counting on me, to be honest. The second question I like to ask is, why am I so uncomfortable? <laughs> Why is it that I have a hard time just telling someone, okay, what's on that post-it note? Shouldn't be that hard, I wrote it down. Like, what is actually going on here? And what we'll find often, if we dig deep enough, is it's fear, it's the selfishness, it's the desire to be seen in a certain way and received in a certain way. And the minute we sort of see that, it becomes a little bit easier to negotiate with it and go, you know what, okay, that's a little selfish of me to care more about this person and, and, and if they think I'm a cool person or a, or a likable person than actually trying to help the team as a whole. And relatedly, I then will ask myself, well, what's the worst possible outcome that could come from this? Because when you actually think about what the worst possible thing could be if you don't give someone the feedback that they should hear, if you don't del delay on firing them, you realize that the worst outcome is, yeah, if you don't do those things. Because then what happens is that person is gonna go about their day thinking things are fine. And then again, surprise. What happens is you set the tone for how disagreements are handled in the company. And then people are surprised when you do a complete 180. That's the cost, right? That's the real cost, not people not liking you. That actually might be a best case scenario in some situations. What's worst case is that you're not doing what your team is actually counting on you to do in the first place. So let's not get too hung up on being so nice all the time. The last biggest mistake that we often make as managers and leaders has to do with how we think about problems. Oh, and there are lots of problems, right? Ooh, problems all the time, problems all the time. And when someone comes to us with a problem as a manager, what do we like to do Typically, I know what I like to do, or what my sort of knee-jerk reaction is, which is I roll up my sleeves, all right, okay, what can I do, how can I help, ooh, right, what, what are the things that I can, I can clear out of the way, I'm gonna solve this, I'm gonna figure it out. Turns out that's not what you should be doing at all. So I interviewed Wade, Zap, or Wade Foster rather from uh, Zapier, who spoke, I think, I think last year here at Boss um, in Europe. 
And he told me this when it comes to problems. He said, when you jump in and try to solve the problem yourself, you're actually mistaking your roles. You've hired this person to solve the problems. And if you're unable to solve the problem, then you might have hired the wrong person, which was what Wade was trying to, to, to really hit home here, is that your job, yeah, like we mentioned earlier, it's not to be nice. It's not to be doing everything, but in particular, your job as a leader is not to be solving the problems themselves, which is such an easy tendency to sink into because the reason we often were promoted into this role or got into this role is because we were the ones solving the problems. We're here because we're good at this, and now you're telling me that I, I'm not supposed to be solving the problems, that I'm not supposed to be doing the thing that I'm good at? Well, here's the thing. It causes problems when you yourself as a manager are the one solving problems. You're the one tweaking that last bit of code. You're the one coming and saving the day on that client call that went awry. When you are the person always doing that, here's what happens. You actually prevent your team from getting any better at solving those exact problems. You stop them from learning because what they notice is they go, oh, Claire's got it, right? Oh, I don't, you know, we don't, we don't need to go deep on that. It's, it's all good. Someone's going to come in and fix this for us. So you prevent your team from ever learning how to become good at those items. And then secondly, you slow your team down. Now that your team is relying on you, everything gets escalated to you every single thing, which means you now unintentionally have become a bottleneck. The issues pile up one after the other after the other, and you, you know, you're doing all other sorts of things, having one-on-one -on -one meetings, trying to map, map out strategy for the long term, and you have all these problems, right? Creates friction, and these things slow down. So instead, rather than thinking, okay, how can I actually solve these problems quicker or faster or better, ask yourself this. How can I help my team think for themselves. How do I actually make sure that they're the ones learning how to solve these problems better and that I'm not the one stopping them from accelerating? So questions are often the answers here. Right? So you can kind of imagine this is a Socratic method, that if someone is coming to you with a problem, instead of just saying, okay, here's what I think you should do, or let me give this a shot, is actually to ask questions. Here's a great one, one I'm sure many of you may have asked before, which is, what do you see as the underlying root cause of the problem? Having the person actually reflect on what is truly the issue here that you need to fix. Another great question to ask instead of solving the problem itself is to define success. Maybe this person has already gotten there and they don't even know. Another question, what's the most likely outcome? So understanding the probabilities of all the sets of things that could happen helps that person evaluate that choice. And again, by asking this question, you're not, you're not solving the problem for them. You're helping them think this through. What have you already tried? Eliminate the options and take them off the table for things that they might have already done. And then actually one of my favorites to ask to help someone solve a problem is, what do you think would happen if you didn't do anything at all? And this is really fantastic for really understanding priorities, what matters, and if a person is perhaps amplifying an issue that shouldn't be. So as we think about asking questions instead of just jumping to answers and trying to solve the problem itself, realize that it's because you ask these questions to help the team think for itself and to build out its own capabilities instead of your own. As leaders, it's not about us feeling good that we're the ones solving the problem. It's that we're helping others figure out how to do it themselves. So 
many of you may be thinking and looking at these slides, thinking, oh, thank you, Claire. You know, that was, that was helpful. You know, I, I appreciate the reminder. I've made a lot of these mistakes in the past, but I'm good now. Like, I, you know, like, I've read a lot of this in blog posts or, like, it's good. I don't make these mistakes anymore. Well, I want to remind you of the statistics we saw earlier, right? That 82% of us in the, this room were not promoted for the right reasons and that 90% of us don't have what is seen as the inherent talent to manage. And I remind this, honestly, again, mainly for myself as well, because the difference in the gap between seeing these things on slides and reading them on blog posts and actually doing them in practice when you have that one-on-one -on -one meeting, when you've written those things down on your sticky note, when you need to fire someone is quite different. So my challenge to you, as much as you may think that these mistakes are mistakes of the past, that you yourself have never made these mistakes, my challenge to you is just to ask, well, are there any that I might be accidentally making? Is it my conception around emphasizing team building and trust instead of thinking about actually intention and behavior? Is it that I'm not preparing for one-on-ones? Is it my conception of time? Do I just really like being busy? Or is it that I actually don't really know or make clear the vision in the company? Am I too nice? Or do I just try to solve the problems all the time? And I would like you to just take stock. And if you find yourself thinking yes to one of them, maybe some of them, or even better, if you do truly feel like, you know what, I actually, you know, I've graduated and I actually don't feel like I make any of these mistakes anymore accidentally, that's amazing. But either way, seeing these things for what they are, knowing that these are accidental mistakes that, trust me, our worst bosses made over and over, is the first and most important step to making progress and making sure that we don't accidentally become someone else's worst boss. So thank you. Thank you, Claire. Some questions? Paul. So that's a really, so the question was, how do you help uh, potential, uh, your worst boss realize that they might be your worst boss, right? And, and uncover those blind spots. So and this is not a cop of the answer, but that is truly one of the most hardest things to do because true identification of a problem starts with the self. It is never imposed from the outside. Like you can't actually solve a problem if you yourself haven't admitted that it's a problem. So to have it, inter, uh, to, to have it, uh, interjected from externally, it, it doesn't really work. So then it becomes this weird second level thing, right? Whereas <laughs> how do you help this person realize for themselves <laughs> that this is a problem, right? And there's a lot of strategies. Um, the biggest is honestly just most straightforward, which is that you tell them, which I know sounds ridiculous because you're like, well, duh. 
but most of these problems occur actually just because of the lack of knowledge, hence the name of my company, Know Your Team, but it truly, it's not because, um, or sometimes it is actually, sorry, sometimes it is because it's not getting through, but a lot of times it's just because of the lack of willingness for people, which is totally valid, by the way, I'm not trying to, to, to play that down, it's, it's, I totally understand why you wouldn't speak up, um, and there's a ton of science around why that is, but um, like that's, that's usually not the problem, it's actually just the lack of information, right? So that's, that's the, the, the biggest thing, um, and specifically, it's in how you tell someone and what you're telling them, right? So what happens a lot of times for why feedback off isn't received by someone who needs to be hearing it is a few things. One, they don't believe you, so there's like a credibility issue, right? So you wanna make sure that it's being delivered by the right person. So for example, hearing from the uh, employee who's sort of underperforming and you're hearing that you're not a good boss from that person, probably not gonna listen to that person as likely as someone on your board. <laughs> so who the messenger is, extremely important. Another thing is in the content of the feedback obviously being as objective as possible. So a lot of times we get into these uh, descriptions of what we think needs to be better because I, you know, I feel this way, I, I am so, it makes me, it, it's, it's about me and it's about the way I'm feeling versus this is what I noticed in the organization, these are the effects that I've seen, this is what I know you wanna make progress on and you're not making progress on, you have to make it about them, right? And objectively about, about the results. Um, and then lastly, and this is possibly the most important thing when it comes to giving upward feedback is around intention. Um, feedback is often most misconstrued because people don't understand why it's being given. They assume it's because you're out to take my job, they assume it's because you're just a nasty person. That's why you're telling me this, right? So the intention has to be clear. So very, very strongly and, and, you know, and however you can communicate it is to say, I'm giving you this feedback because like, I don't want you to lose your job or I care about your personal progress in your career or I know the type of manager and leader you want to be. Like I know, I know what that is and, and I don't think you're being that right now. And so communicating that care is, is by far the most important thing. Thanks for the question. Uh, yeah, I uh, have a question. Can you talk a little to... Um, Where is that sound from? coming from? Hello, I'm down here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a microphone. It's a new technology. Whoa, elastic <laughs> trickery in action. Witchcraft, witchcraft. <laughs> Juju um, magic. Uh, <laughs> uh, those of us who are in smaller companies... Um, sure. Could you speak a little to the balance, <coughs> particularly on the point of um, doing your team's job for them? Sure. Um, those of us who have to play somewhat a supervisory role as well as playing the role of an individual contributor, the balance in there, of, like, we're not sweeping in, but also, sure. yeah. Yeah, so I think um, uh, balance is, uh, is a confusing word because I don't think there's true balance, right? It's ebbs and flows, and so we're, as you know, or many, maybe some of you don't know, we're a tiny, tiny company. So I face that every single day of, you know, I'm writing all this stuff about, you know, not solving problems, but in my day to day, I actually have to solve problems, right? And it's just by virtue of the size of the company. And so what I tend to look at it as is ebbs and flows. 
So there are periods where if you're having a one-on-one -on -one meeting, right, don't ask the status update, don't get in to solve a problem. If it's not your domain, right, if you're an engineer and it's something on the design side, right, that person needs to solve the problem themselves. So understanding that there are times when you're wearing that hat and then in a small company, of course, times where you are gonna be the one debugging code or having the conversations with clients. So with all of this actually that I suggested, it's definitely not one broad sweep of anything, right? Especially in small companies or for very big companies, all of these sort of, your, your mileage varies accordingly and you want to adjust all the suggestions that I made. But I think the most core thing to keep in mind is growth. So if you plan to scale and grow as a company, how are you setting a precedent and creating a foundation so that it's clear what your role is? That your role isn't to solve problems, that your role is to support and make sure that you're helping to uncover issues and not in the weeds of the work. So how do you set that precedent as a five-person company, as a 15-person company, as a 25-person company, before then you, know, you get to 30 and you're like, oh, everyone thinks that I'm supposed to still be you know, taking care of the code. Like, no, I, I can't be solving problems at that point. Great question, thanks. Oh, Jamie. Mm -hmm. uh, in the other mic in the corner. Oh. Try now. Oh, hello. Oh, there we go. Sorry. Press button. Um, thanks, Claire. That was yeah. fantastic. Um, so my question is basically towards the, the beginning of the slides. Yes. Um, and you said to touch base with your the employees and think about their own personal visions and mm. then generating a vision based on everyone else's. Yep. So what what do you what advice would you give if there are a couple of employees who perhaps haven't expressed such positive visions? If that makes sense. Um, so, do you mind if I ask a follow-up question? Uh, so, when you mean positive, you mean not aligned with the company, or that they actually just don't see themselves progressing far? Yeah, I think a bit of both. Um, primarily the latter. Um, I mean, for instance, they were like, "Oh yeah, we, we don't understand how um, how you want to create a, a one billion dollar business or whatever," but they don't understand how that can happen, and they've been a little bit. Um, maybe just aren't excited or sure. don't understand how that's even possible, but they are a really good employee. They do great work, but sure. it just, yeah. So trying to figure out where Absolutely. their vision is, yeah. Well, so one thing is to clarify is that creating a billion dollar company would definitely not be a personal vision. And I don't think you were implying that, but point being is that whatever you are personally excited about as a manager, or as a CEO, like what gets you up in the morning might not get folks who are on your team up in the morning, right? And that's okay. So the key with figuring out why identifying what people's personal visions are is so important is because you wanna actually do figure out though what does get them up in the morning, right? What is it that they are personally excited about in their career? And it could literally, here's the thing, it could even be non-career related, it could be anything, absolutely anything. And it may not be to the, and sometimes it's hard to recognize because it's not like in the same degree or you're like, wait, how could you be excited about that? Or, or it's, it's not even, or, and you know, and this is possibly one of the most frustrating things as a manager is you're like, but it's not even related to the thing. <laughs> you're like, oh, come this way, but it's not gonna happen. Well, here's the thing, as managers, we have to have a reality check of as much as we would want it to all sort of be aligned, sometimes it's not. And sometimes that's okay. The important thing though is to understand the difference because when you can see the difference, when you can see that, okay, these two people, like you said, great employees, right? might have personal visions that you don't really understand how it's going to tie, right? They're not, like career progression isn't really that important. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't really have the personal growth goals that you thought. That might be okay, but it's important information to take in because 
frankly, maybe they might not be long-term employees in the company, or maybe they're in roles where that might actually not be important necessarily, at least right now. But I think the important thing is to actually take stock and understand that there are personal visions and not just this grand team vision, and that the team vision only exists because personal visions are contributing to it is, is the important piece. So long story short, it's okay. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.